All right. Not too bad. Not too bad. Hey, so we're so glad that you're in the room tonight. And uh, I hope that as we've been going through this story of God series, that God has been revealing so many different things to you, uh, has been challenging you, maybe in your lack of understanding about the Bible. Uh, maybe you've begun to see the, the dots connect a little bit. Maybe you've be- begun to see that this is not just some like fairy tale or some bunch of random stories all over the place, but rather this has value and God is writing a huge story and it has tremendous impact for you and for me. And so if this is your first week with us, I'm going to do it like a real quick recap of what we covered so far. So we talked about at the very beginning, how before the beginning God was. So before you and I were here, before anything that we see is, was here, God existed, that God was eternal, that God was all sufficient and that God is life. And because God is life, God brought life through creation. And so God made the heavens and the earth and the planets and he made the animals and the oceans and the mountains and he made everything and breathed life into that. And then as the crown jewel of his creation, God made in his image human beings. He made you and me. And the fact that he made us in his image means that he took great care and detail in what he created And then he didn't just throw it together, but rather we were important to him. And so he made us in his image, unlike any other part of creation. And so what God's desire for his crown jewel of creation was to walk closely in relationship with him. That's what God wanted for us. And that's what God had established in the very beginning with Adam and Eve as they walked around the Garden of Eden. They were in close connection, relationship with God. And it was good. And then because Adam and Eve, in being tempted by Satan in the garden, began to wonder, hey, is God holding out on us? Has he not told us everything? Can we find sufficiency in other things apart from our relationship with him? And so they grabbed fruit off of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, even though God told them not to. And they ate of it. And when they did, death and sin and destruction entered the creation story. And it had a tremendous impact on every part of creation, which is why there's natural disasters and why there's disease and famine and why there's murder and rape and all the different things that go on that now all of a sudden this perfect good creation that God has made has now been splintered because of sin. And worst of all, it has severed that close connection that God had with human beings. And so had God not cared or whatever, he could have said, you know what? You deal with this on your own. You figure out how you're going to resolve this sin problem. Or, hey, I could just wipe this out and start over. But God, because of his love for us, desired to repair that close relationship and and that relationship that sin had broken. And so God desired to do something about it. And so the rest of the story is about God bringing about a permanent solution to that sin problem and that disconnection with himself. And so you have Noah and his family. And so because sin started running rampant all throughout creation, God says, you know what, I'm gonna start over. And so he brings Noah and his family and and a couple animals from all over the, the world into this boat, brings about this global flood to eradicate sin on a temporary basis from the earth. And then they get back out of the boat and God renews his promise, his covenant with Noah. And then he renews, he finds another guy named Noah, or excuse me, named Abraham. And he chooses him because of his faithfulness. And he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. 
and your descendants are going to be are going to outnumber the grains of sand on the on the on the beach and it's going to be this amazing thing I'm going to make you into this powerful nation. And so God makes this promise to Abraham and then it passes down through the generations of his family. And so he gathers his people together, now called Israel, and they find themselves together but in slavery in this country called Egypt. And Pharaoh and the Egyptians have taken them captive and they're holding them in bondage and slavery and they're making them do everything that they want them to do. And Israel's cries, their their cries of suffering and pain are rising up to, to heaven and God hears it and sees it and he knows it's time to respond. And so he finds this ordinary guy, nothing special about him, named Moses. And he, show, he reveals himself to Moses through a burning bush. And he says, hey, you're going to be my guy. You're going to be my spokesman. I want you to go to Pharaoh because you're going to be the one that's going to lead my people out of Egypt. So that's up to this point what we've covered in this story. And this is not just some random story. I think it's important for us to stand, understand that these are real people that are a part of God's real plan. And as we talked about last week, you and I have an opportunity to be a part of God's work. And either we can choose to make excuses like what Moses did initially, as we talked about last week, or we can choose to trust in God's power and his plan. And so that's where we stopped last week. And so Moses, after rolling out all the excuses and God just shooting them all down, finally relents and he says, all right, God, I'll do this. I'll go back to Pharaoh and I'll I'll help lead my people. I'll go along with this crazy plan that you've got. Now, if you dive in a little bit deeper, you can't help but really feel for Moses and for him being nervous and for him rolling out all these excuses. I think if you and I were in that boat, we probably would have done the same thing. Because first of all, at this point, like this had to have seemed like an impossible task. At this point in the story, there are probably anywhere from a million to two million Israelites or Jews. All right, so imagine God comes to you and he says, hey, you're going to be the leader of, I don't, it's not like I'm just going to be able to roll up into Egypt and demand that Israel be set free and Pharaoh's going to go, all right, cool. Right, because Egypt really needs their Israelite slaves. They've depended on them and they've helped They've used them to build their cities and all this kind of stuff. So it's not like this is going to be an easy order that Pharaoh is going to go along with. Not to mention the fact that the last time I was in Egypt, God, the last Pharaoh wanted to kill me. So Moses has probably got all these things going through his mind. Like this is, in, this is crazy right now. And then to make it even more difficult, God actually tells Moses that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh won't let Israel free. So you add all that up, and this is like an impossible task, an overwhelming task. And yet Moses goes along with it after a lot of excuses. And it's a really good thing that God promises promises Moses that he's going to be with him. And if God is going to call you or I to anything, then you better believe that God's going to give us the power to accomplish it. So Moses and his brother Aaron, they go to, first of all, they go back to Egypt and they gather around the the Israelite leaders. All right. And they sit down with them and Moses says, hey, I've had this this burning bush experience out in the desert. It's this amazing thing. God spoke to me and he said that he's going to lead you out of Egypt. 
and I'm going to be kind of the, the man to lead you out of there. And so Israel's overjoyed. They start celebrating. They start worshiping God. They're saying, finally, God has heard our cries of suffering. Finally, God has answered all the prayers that we've prayed. Finally, after many, many years of slavery and bondage in, in Egypt, God is going to bring us out of this. And so they're celebrating, they're worshiping God. This is, there's, there's this amazing thing going on. And so, so far, so good, right? So here's what happens in Exodus chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. It says, After this presentation to Israel's leaders, Moses and Aaron went and spoke to Pharaoh. They told him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so they may hold a festival in my honor in the wilderness. Is that so, retorted Pharaoh. And who is the Lord? Why should I listen to him and let, him, let Israel go? I don't know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. All right, so that part went about like Moses thought it was going to. All right, he said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no way, that's not happening. And so after a little back and forth, Pharaoh actually goes to the Egyptian slave masters and he says, hey, you know how hard you've been working these Israelite slaves? I want you to double it. I want you to work them twice as hard as you have up to this point. And so that's exactly what happens. So they start working them even harder. And Israel starts crying out to Pharaoh for mercy. And Pharaoh says, no way. I'm not, I'm not going to give you mercy for this. You're going you're to suffer even more because of this. And so Israel gets upset. And who do they blame? Moses. They start looking at Moses going, what the heck, man? Like you showed up on the scene and now you just made it twice as hard for us. Now we're having to work twice as hard than we were before you showed up. So God goes, I mean, Moses goes back to God and he's like, what the heck, God? What's this all about? I told you back at the burning bush that I was not cut out for this job. I told you to go find somebody else. And now their suffering is even worse. And God, in his patience and in his kindness, just simply reminds Moses and the Israelite people of his promise. He simply says, hey, I made a promise a long time ago to Abraham that I was going to make you into a great nation and lead you into the promised land. And so just let me bring it about. So just trust me. Don't, don't depend on the immediate results, but just trust me because I've got a plan and I'm going to lead you out of here. So Moses goes back to Pharaoh a second time. And he says, hey, let my people go. And he still wouldn't listen. Moses takes his staff and he throws it down on the ground and it turns into a snake. All right, as a display of God's power. And so Pharaoh goes, all right, that's a cool trick. And so he pulls in his magicians and his magicians are able to pull off the same trick. And so even though Moses' snake swallows the other snakes... Pharaoh still won't listen to Moses and what he's asking. And so over the next several weeks, there ends up being this kind of back and forth between God and really and God and, and Pharaoh. And so what, what God ends up doing is he starts showing and demonstrating his power to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but also displaying his commitment to his people. And he does it through a series of, of these plagues that he brings about to Egypt. So first of all, he turns all the water in the land into blood. All right, which around Halloween would be kind of a pretty cool trick. But normally that's not a, a cool thing. And it ended up killing all the fish. 
So then he covers the land with frogs. Then he sent a plague of gnats, which would be, that would be it for me. Um, if you ever had gnats flying around and they just won't leave you alone. So a plague of gnats, then he sends a, a, a plague of flies. Then he sends a plague that killed all of the livestock in Egypt. All right, then after that, he causes the people of Egypt to be covered head to toe in boils. Not cool. Then he sends hail and locusts that kills all the crops in the land. And then he sends darkness that covers the entire land of Egypt for three days. So just boom, 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 one after the other, just plague after plague after plague, just relentless, one after the other. And every single one at the end of it, Pharaoh still, his heart hardened, refuses to let Israel go. And there's some times where he's like, all right, I'll let you go for a few days. And then he'll say, well, I'll let some people go. And then he's like, all right, I'll let them go if, if God will just remove the plague. And so God removes the plague and then, and then Pharaoh changes his mind. But after every single one of these plagues, Pharaoh's heart is still hardened towards what Moses is demanding. And so finally, God comes to Moses and he says, I've got one more plague that I'm going to send. And this is going to be the final plague. So he comes to Moses and he tells, he tells him to go all throughout Israel and command every family. Kind of a super weird request, right? Like what, what's even the point of any of that? So then he says this in Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 11. He says, these are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed, wear your sandals, and carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, there are two parts to this that we're going to break down for just a minute. There's what God commands Israel to do, and there's what God says is going to happen to Egypt. All right, now let's talk about what God says is going to happen to Egypt first, because I would imagine there's probably a few more questions we have about that. All right, so basically what God says here is I'm going to send a, this last plague is going to involve me striking down every firstborn son and every firstborn male animal in the entire land of Egypt. And the question that maybe pops into some of our brains is, hey, is God taking this a little too far now? He's gone, gone to a little bit of an extreme. Now all of a sudden he's killing people. He's just like wiping out just large groups of people. I mean, is God really going to wipe out every firstborn son in that entire land? Now, remember, death was not a part of God's original plan. That's not what God intended. But because of the decision that started with Adam and Eve in the garden, that severed that connection with God, now sin and death and disease is a part of this creation. And so what God is choosing to do is use death as part of what is now existent on this planet, to use death to bring about his plan. 
to demonstrate his power to Egypt and to those gods that Egypt serves and to prove his faithfulness to his people. So that's what God is doing here now. So we may look at that and go, man, it looks like, man, God's a murderer and God's a killer, but that's not the way that God sees what's going on right now. God's looking at this and seeing his people in bondage and slavery. And so he's coming to their rescue. Now, here's the other thing. I used to to read this story when I was little. I thought, man, these, these plagues are so random, right? You've got flies and gnats and frogs and then waters turn into blood and like, it's just weird. Why, why did God choose all these random things? And then I began to realize that these, these aren't random things. These plagues that God is sending, check this out. They are directly related to, to gods that Egypt worshiped and depended on. So for example, Egypt had a, guy, a God of the Nile river. All right. They worship, worshiped a God of the Nile river. And so when God chose to turn water into blood or sending frogs out of the river or attacking crops, that was an attack on that God. And so then God choosing the firstborn sons was the ultimate attack. Because Egypt, they believed that sons, S-O-N-S, were a gift from the sun God, S-U-N, the God named Ra. All right, so they worshiped this God of the sun. His name was Ra. And they believed that proof of the sun God Ra's presence with Egypt was him blessing them with sons, S-O-N-S. So what God is doing here in this moment by even attacking the firstborn sons is he's sending a clear message to the Egyptians and their gods that, he's not gonna, that they are powerless to stop him from freeing his people and from keeping them enslaved any longer. So God is demonstrating, he's putting his foot on the throat of all of these other gods that really aren't gods at all. And he is demonstrating that he is the one true God. So that's what God is doing in this moment. But this plague also has something that was required of the Israelite people and what they had to do. And so what he commanded them to do was to kill that lamb that pure spotless young lamb, and then to spread the blood on the door frames and across the post. And so when the, when the Lord came through to kill the firstborn sons and he saw that blood, then God's wrath and God's judgment would pass over them. Basically that blood would stand in the way and say, hey, these people are covered. So that's exactly what happens. God gives this command. Israel goes about, puts blood on the door frames, gathers each family in their house. They celebrate this meal together. And at midnight that night, the angel of the Lord came through the land of Israel, struck down all the firstborn sons, including the son of Pharaoh himself. And I know last week you guys said, I, most of you hadn't seen the Prince of Egypt. And so just to help visualize this scene a little bit, I want you to check out this quick clip from that movie. So here's what Exodus 12 verse 30 says at the end of this passage. It says, So Pharaoh and all his officials and all the people of Egypt 
woke up during the night and loud wailing was heard throughout the land of Egypt. There was not a single house where someone had not died. So when one display of power, God both pours out his wrath on sin and yet also shows mercy towards his people. And God is not wrong to do either one of those things. So that night, Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron tells him to leave Egypt and be free. And so the people of of Israel gathered their things that night and they left. And we'll talk about in a couple weeks kind of how that story continues because the story there is not done. But 430 years after Abraham had been promised by God to be made into a great, great country, great nation, to have a promised land. 430 years after, Moses now leads the people towards that land that God had promised them. And for centuries after that, each year, what Israel would do is they would gather together and they would celebrate this meal called the Passover. And according to history and what what Jewish uh, history would celebrate is that this was an opportunity for, for them every year to be reminded to remember what God has done, that how God showed up and brought them out of slavery in Egypt. That in God's goodness to his people, that he heard their cries of suffering and he brought freedom for them. Now, some of you guys may may hear this and you go, all right, man, another cool story from the Old Testament that happened a long time ago. What exactly does that have to do with me tonight? There's a lot that this story has to do with us, probably more so than maybe any of us realize. Just like God brought Israel out of bondage in Egypt, what God wants to do for all of us is bring us out of bondage too. He wants to free us from the things that enslave us, the sin and the struggles that keep us distant from God. But God just hasn't just come to save you from something. God's also come to save you for something. What God's desire is for you to experience worship to him, to experience a close connection with him like what Adam and Eve had in the beginning. And so what God's plan and God's desire to do is to bring about a restoration of that close connection and relationship with him. And so that's what God is doing here and and showing us in this story. But see, here's the difference between what God did here in this story and ultimately the bigger picture of what God's doing for all of us. Because here in, in this story, God shows up in the book of Exodus and he, and he brings freedom, but he brings freedom only for the Israelite people. That blood that was shed from that lamb that covered the doorposts, that only covered the people in that one house. So, It was powerful, but it was only powerful for a select group of people. But God's plan, God's bigger picture is not just to bring freedom and hope and and freedom from bondage and slavery for just a select group of people. But God's desire is to bring freedom and hope and forgiveness to the entire world. That's God's heart as the rescuer of stepping into the story as somebody who brings us out of our bondage to sin and out of our slavery. And this one story in the Old Testament is really just a foreshadow of the bigger picture and the bigger story that God has. Because what God wants, this one lamb was just a temporary thing, but God's got a bigger lamb 
in store down the road. One of the names for Jesus throughout the Bible is the Lamb of God. And it's foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And then when Jesus is on the the planet, he's, he's called the Lamb of God on multiple occasions. And even at the end of the story in Revelation, that's something that he's called. And so God, all throughout the story of God, Jesus is known as the Lamb of God. And so what Jesus is ultimately going to do is he is going to make the ultimate sacrifice. It's his blood as the Lamb of God that's going to be shed in order to be covered over our lives so that God's wrath and God's punishment on sin that any of us deserve would cover us, that it would be on Jesus himself and not for us. So that when God comes and to, to bring about wrath and destruction on sin, would look at our lives and if we've trusted Jesus as our savior, that blood covers us from our sins and God passes over. That blood covers us from what, what sin ultimately wants to, wants to do to us. And so as cool of a story as this in the Old Testament, if you just take it from the Old Testament, you're like, all right, that, that's cool, but I don't know how that impacts me. But this shows us, just gives us a small picture of what Jesus has done for us. That Jesus is that lamb that's come to set us free from our sins. Here's our main point for us tonight. The Passover lamb brought temporary salvation for the people of Israel. But the lamb of God brings permanent salvation for anyone who believes. And because of what Jesus has done for us later on in the story, he makes it possible for any of us to have forgiveness if we believe. If we come to a place in our life where we put our faith and trust in what Jesus as the Lamb of God did for us on the cross, then we can have freedom and the forgiveness of sin. And not even temporary, but permanent. So this Passover celebration that the Israelite people celebrated was in order to remember what God had done for them to bring them out of slavery. And so you and I, as as followers of Jesus, we have something that we're told and commanded to do to help us remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And it's called communion. And so ironically, on the night before Jesus, while he's on the earth, is about to become that sacrificial lamb for our sins. He gathers his disciples around the night before to celebrate Passover, to celebrate that Jewish tradition, that Jewish remembrance of what had happened in this part of the story. And so he gathers his disciples together, knowing full well that the next day he's going to be the ultimate Passover lamb for all of us. And so as he's having a meal with his disciples, he takes out the bread that they're eating and he, he stands up and he tells the disciples, hey, this, is, this bread it represents my body. My body that's going to be broken for you on the cross the next day. And so he says, every time you eat, do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I'm about to do for you. And then at that moment, he takes the wine, or we would use grape juice. And he says, this wine or this grape juice represents, it represents my blood that's going to be shed for you the very next day. And so when you drink and when you eat, do it to remember me. And so the challenge that Jesus is extending to all of us is that we never forget what God has done for us. 
What made that Passover celebration so powerful was because it reminded constantly the Israelite people, even generations down the road who had never been in Egypt. They didn't know slavery, but they heard the stories of what God had done. And it was a chance for them to be brought in and celebration of what God had done as his rescuer for his people. And so what you and I have an opportunity to do tonight through communion is to celebrate and remember what Jesus has done for us. That even though you and I deserve the wrath of God because of our sin that separates us from him, God loved us enough that he stepped into our mess, he stepped into our sin, and he became our sin. He took all that sin on the cross. And because his blood was shed, he offered freedom and forgiveness for all of us. And so in just a minute, I'm going to pray. And we've got a couple stations up here on the front with communion, um, a little wafer that represents the bread and a little little juice. And, um, and so we're going to worship. And as you feel led to, we're going to invite you to come up and, uh, and celebrate communion. And so just a couple of rules around this that, um, that the Bible gives us. So this is for believers. So if you're in the room tonight and you've never taken a step to trust Jesus as your Savior, Number one, you can do that tonight, like right now. And then you can come and celebrate communion as the first step that you take after trusting Jesus as your Savior, which is amazing. But it is for those of us that have actually taken that step in our life where we've trusted and received the forgiveness that Jesus offers us. And so if you have not done that and you're not ready to do that, then you can just stay at your seat and not come up and celebrate that, and that's okay. But if you have taken that step, then this is an opportunity for as you're come up and do that, not to goof off with your friends or anything, but just to, to celebrate, to talk to God, to say, God, thank you that you love me enough that you gave up your life for me. And so I, I do this to remember and celebrate the sacrifice that you made so that I could be free and forgiven. And so now let's just do that together. We're gonna sing about it. We're gonna celebrate through communion. And so let's do, just have this moment we're able to celebrate what God has done for us as the rescuer for his people. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for the story in the Old Testament. Thank you for the power that it holds, God, when we see the bigger picture. God, it shows your heart, shows your desire to come and to rescue your people. But God, your heart is for everybody. And Jesus, that's why you came to this planet, not just so that a select group of people could know you, but God, so that everybody would have an opportunity to come to faith in you. So Jesus, I pray if there are students in the room tonight that have never taken that step, they've put their faith and trust in you as Savior. God, I pray that they would do that tonight. That just right where they sit, that they would call out to you, admit their sin, and believe that what you did for them on the cross is enough, and accept that free gift of salvation. God, for any of us that have, God, I pray that you would not allow us to, to go through, God, even day by day where we forget or lose sight of the incredible gift that you've given us, the sacrifice that you made with your own life, your own blood that was shed so that we could be free and forgiven from our sins. So God, may we celebrate that through singing. May we celebrate that through communion. God, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.